Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. This week continues our series, Unanswered. Enjoy and thanks for listening. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let me just say thank you to uh, Pastor Eric and his wife, Tanya, for their warm welcome. I get the chance to visit a lot of churches, and I just have enjoyed so much uh, meeting your pastor in person after exchanging a number of emails and meeting Tanya and some of the children. We are so delighted that Clarice is doing very well at Eastern, right? The first year is always a bit challenging, and we're so grateful that she's doing well, and and Lindsay is going to be coming So please send your children, grandchildren, nieces, and nephews uh, to Eastern University, the greatest university in the world. One of my responsibilities as a university chaplain is to do teaching. And one of the courses I love to teach, I do it every spring semester, is a course in uh, Introduction to the New Testament, which takes first-year, second-semester students through the books of the New Testament, from Matthew through Revelation. It's wonderful to work with first-year students in that capacity. I give them a number of assignments for evaluation to grade. And then we have a final exam, which I often focus on content. What did they learn in this course? Which every professor would like to know. What have you learned? So I'd like to share with you this morning three of the final exam questions that I gave this past spring. I liked, and then I'm going to give you the correct answer. And then one answer that a few students put in uh, there. So we'll kind of follow along this way. The first question uh, that I want to share with you is the Apostle Paul was the apostle to whom? The Apostle Paul was the apostle to whom? The correct answer is to the Gentiles. We spent some time on that as we were studying the Apostle Paul, his missionary travels, and his letters. Few students wrote the following as a fill in the blank. The Apostle Paul was the apostle to the epistles, to the (laughs) epistles, letters, and so forth. I guess some students just thought that was just so, you know, sounded, sounded well, the apostle to the epistles. All right, another question. Good Friday commemorates what event in the life of Jesus? Good Friday commemorates what event in the life of Jesus? Correct answer, of course, is his death or crucifixion. Had a few students at Eastern University. Uh, I think what they were under the assumption is if they don't know an answer, if they say something that, that the professor would affirm, like the resurrection of Jesus or something, or the Holy Spirit, that he probably will give them extra credit or some additional credit. Well, I got a few responses that Good Friday commemorates the resurrection. And I said, oh, my. That, I went through Holy Week and everything with them, you know. <laughs> oh, my. Maybe it's more a reflection on the professor than it is a student. But last question. The earliest schools of Christianity were, the earliest schools of Christianity were, and and what I mean by this question is, if you look at the New Testament, you realize that there are pretty significant people that wrote significant letters, like Paul, Peter, 
John, and so forth. So we look at them as schools within the school of Christianity. These were uh, disciples who had a lot of influence, and they had followers and so forth. So the correct answer would be the, the Johannai or the Petrine or the Pauline school, right? Well, reading through the exams, one student put the response, the name, the earliest school in Christianity, Oxford University. <laughs> now, um, granted, it's the oldest English-speaking university in the world, but unfortunately, it is the incorrect answer. So as I was grading these 40 or so exams, I just started to tear up, and they weren't tears of joy, I will say that. But I will say there is hope at Eastern University for our students, because during the course of the semester, a student did ask what I thought was such a wonderful question, an insightful question. This goes to your series about unanswered. So I'm going to offer you the question that the student asked, and then I'm going to hopefully process with you this morning what I think Scripture says is the answer to that question. So here's the question. Student raised her hand, and she said, Dr. Modica, when did the earliest followers of Jesus know when they were Christians? When did the earliest followers of Jesus recognize that they were Christians, as we understand Christians today? Wow, what a great question. There's a student who's listening. We were talking at the time about how Jesus is a Jew, right? I don't think that's incontrovertible, right? Jesus is a Jew. He wasn't a Methodist or a Presbyterian, right? Jesus, a Jew, claims to be the Messiah. His earliest followers were Jewish, and then they began to branch out to the, the, to the world. So they began to invite others to participate. But the earliest movement was a Jewish movement. So it wasn't Christian as we understand church to be today. What a great question. So this morning, my friends, what I want to do, just briefly, is to take you to two passages in the Acts of the Apostles that we'll briefly look at. Now, I want you to do this for me, and I have no way of knowing you're going to do this, but sometime during this week, I'd like you to read Acts 9, 10, and 11, meaning I'm only going to touch on the beginning of Acts 9 and towards the end of Acts 11, but really the stuff in the middle is really important. It'll take you 15 minutes. How do I know that? Because I time myself reading it, <laughs> and I'm a slow reader. So you can get it done but I want you to read it to examine the things I'm saying today. So, because don't trust what I'm saying. I always tell students uh, at the beginning of every course, um, about 80% of what I say is correct. Right? 20% is sometimes I just embellish things. So I just throw something out there to see if you're listening. And it's your, it's your responsibility to figure out what that 20% is. So, again, I'm here today, and I'm grateful to be here. But I want you to study this on your own, too. Look at Scripture. We believe that Scripture is not just a book for us to use um, kind of inspirationally, but it's supposed to shape the way we think about the church. It is supposed to shape the way we think about the church. So, the book is the Acts of the Apostles. Maybe you've heard of it before. It is written by the gospel writer Luke. Actually, out of the four gospel writers, one writes a sequel. A sequel is like what Sylvester Stallone did seven times, right? Rocky one, Rocky two, Rocky six, right? Some of those Rockies maybe could have been eliminated, but nevertheless, nevertheless, a sequel is written to continue the story. So what Luke is doing is his gospel tells us about Jesus, 
And the Acts of the Apostles tells us about the followers of Jesus. Get it? About Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And then Acts of the Apostles begins to show us how the earliest followers of Jesus lived their lives in the first century. This is important. We don't live in the first century, right? We live in the 21st century. But if we believe that God's word still speaks to us, there are are themes, there's ways of understanding that I believe that Luke is trying to show us in his recording of history. Now, it's the first 30 years of the church. There's 28 chapters. It's not a very long book, but you know that there's a, a lot that Luke doesn't tell us in 30 years. He doesn't write down everything. But what he gives us, I believe, this morning is something to help us understand what were the priorities of the earliest Christians? What were the priorities of the earliest followers of Jesus? So I'm going to show you, we're going to talk a little bit about those passages this morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to open it up to Acts of the Apostles, all right? And we're going to just, I'm going to read a couple of scripture verses, or if you have it on your phone. That's something I had to learn quickly as a university chaplain. (laughs) I still like a book. But students are, you know, tablets, phones, and so forth. It would be very interesting to see how Jesus would do the Sermon on the Mount today on PowerPoint. (laughs) Next slide, Peter. Next slide, Peter. Next slide, Peter. Okay. So let me just just read to you the the beginning portion of Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of God. Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay? Here's the context. Persecution began in Acts chapter 9 at the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the church. Things are going, things are starting to percolate. This person, Saul, will become the great apostle Paul, not to the epistles, but to the Gentiles. We'll get there. And this is something that, that frames, Luke is framing this for us. And do you notice what the earliest followers of Jesus called themselves, right? This is what we're trying to get at. What did the earliest followers of Jesus call themselves? The way. Isn't that amazing? That's an insider's view. They must have gathered together somewhere and said, yeah, we're the way. That's what we'll call ourselves, or that's how it's kind of unfolding. The way. Now, just as a parenthetical note, please do not go home and Google the way. Uh, If you do, you'll come across a website um, of a kind of a spurious Christian group that has a very, very faulty Christology, nice people, and they've been on our campus trying to recruit students, but, uh, but not, that's not the way I'm talking about. All right? This is a, a way that Luke is speaking about in the Acts of the Apostles. Where did this ex- expression come from? Why would they ever call themselves the way? How many of you remember what Jesus said about the way? Yeah, remember the Gospel of John? Chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus, in one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Perhaps the early followers of Jesus were saying, like Jesus, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to follow him on the way. Now, the word way there is like highway or pathway. It's a very simple word. It's not 
theologically driven or you have to think, you have to go to seminary to understand the word. It just means way, like movement, way of salvation, movement towards something. Isn't that interesting? That maybe they took that term based on the teachings of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John. Or maybe we could even go back into the Old Testament. For any of us who have read the Old Testament know that my, particularly in the first five books of the Old Testament, there's always a choice between righteous and unrighteous given to the Israelites. You have a choice. You can go this, you can choose blessings, or choose curses, right? There's always a choice. The problem in our culture is we don't just have two choices, right? Well, we might. But you ever go into, just say, a, a large supermarket and go down the cereal aisle, you know that Cheerios has now been, you know, uh, not just two Cheerios. There's like 14 different brands of Cheerios. You know, it's very overwhelming. But the point being, in the Old Testament, they saw themselves as making one of two choices. Psalm 1, verse 6. Many of us know Psalm 1. And if you want to look at it this week, add that to the list. Psalm 1, the last verse says, there is a way of righteousness and a way of unrighteousness, and one has to choose. I think the early followers of Jesus were saying that they were called the way, they called themselves the way because they were following Jesus. They were following Jesus. Now, friends, I'm going to show you that things change. That's the whole point here, to see things change from, how they, well, from what they call themselves to what others call them. So right now, I'm going to go to another text briefly that functions like a bookend. I believe Luke is doing this intentionally. I think Luke is telling us these stories to bookend the transition between the way to becoming Christian. All right? The way to becoming Christian. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 11. All right? Acts chapter 11 verses 25 and 26, towards the end of this time that they're in Syria, of Assyrian of Antioch. Okay, let me read that text to you. And again, if you have a phone, Bible, just take a look at how it's written. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul is the apostle Paul. That's his birthplace, Tarsus. So that's where he was born. He was very familiar with that city. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, which is located in Turkey. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, do you notice there, I'm using the New Revised Standard Version, but other printed Bibles will sometimes have the word Christian in quotation marks. I think the translators believe that that wasn't a laudatory compliment. Oh, Christians, but almost like a derogatory a dig. People from the outside were looking at people in Syria of Antioch and saying, look at them. They're Christianos, uh, just a term. They're Christians. They're followers of that Christ guy. And, and, and yeah, that's who they are. It's interesting, my friends, that our label... Right? If we call ourselves Christians this morning, right, we own that label, that was given to us from somebody from the outside. It was not an insider term. It was given from the outside. 
It wasn't as if Jesus ascended into heaven in, in Acts 1, and then all of a sudden the earliest followers of Jesus said, hey, we need to brand ourselves. We probably need a website. Let's get an Instagram account. What's our Twitter handle? They didn't, all right, what do I have about business cards? And they said, yeah, let's go with Christian. That, that sounds okay. I don't think it's ever been used. Of course they don't. They don't do that. They just go out preaching the gospel. People are responding to it. And they call themselves the way. And the group gets larger and larger and larger. And before you know it, they're in Syria of Antioch. And they start to be called Christians from outsiders. Now, Syria of Antioch, just to let you know, is a big city. It's the third largest city at this time in the first century, followed by Rome, the capital of the empire, being the first largest, then Alexandria, right, in Egypt, the, the, the place of Alexander the Great, the greatest library at the time. Then comes Antioch of Syria. So don't think this is happening in someone's backyard or someone's basement. This is happening for all the world to see. This is like, in our country, would be happening in Chicago, which is the third largest city, right? It's all of a sudden like something was happening in Chicago and people said, look, that's, they're Christians. Look, they're doing things that, oh yeah, they're Christians. Let's call them Christians. Phenomenal. Here's an observation I just want to make. It's a little bit of an undigested observation. Too often, I think, we worry about what we call ourselves versus what actually are people calling us? What are they seeing? What are they seeing? Sometimes we worry about the lingo. I'm worried about how others are perceiving us. When, people were, when the early followers of Jesus were called Christians, it's similar to back in the 1980s, you might have heard of the Unification Church, followers of Reverend Sun Yun Moon. Remember what they were called, right? Moonies, right? We don't say, oh, Moonies, what a laudatory term. No, I think Christians there is a derogatory term, but yet it meant something and it stuck because that's what we call ourselves today. But let me, let me say one thing. Um, the word Christian has been co-opted, right, in many ways. I mean, um, sometimes people think this about Christians. This comes from a study uh, by David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. They wrote a book called Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and, and, and that it matters. It was written about seven, eight, nine years ago. They say when they asked outsiders, like people who never would identify with Christianity, when they hear the word Christian, tell me what you think about they give six characteristics. Let me just briefly go over them. One is hypocritical. Two, too focused on getting converts. Three, anti-homosexual. Four, sheltered, old-fashioned, boring, and out of touch of reality. That's just one, that's just one group. Fifth, too political. And lastly, judgmental. Granted, none of you bear those characteristics today. Now, I don't know who you are. I'm assuming we, and I don't certainly bear any characteristics, but no, in some ways we all have responsibility, right? It, it, we all share some of that responsibility. But the point being, even when we, we use the label Christian, there's a lot to be unpacked there. Do you follow? That even now when we use the word Christian, much like they used it in the first century, it has to be unpacked. You have to be able to describe what it means to be a Christian today. So what happens in between is critical. I think these are bookends. Nine, uh, Acts 9, 1 and 2 and Acts 11, 24, 25, uh, 25, 26. They're bookends. What happens in the middle? Let me just highlight a couple things that happen in the middle, but you're going to read about it this week. 
What happens in the middle, Luke really wants us to know because that really is what the, para the paradigm shifts. What happens in the middle in Acts chapter 9 is the calling or conversion of Saul. Right? He becomes the apostle, not to the epistles, but to the Gentiles. Right? He becomes blinded. Ananias takes him in for three days, and he gets his calling. And now he's going to go out and share the good news with the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, there's a vision of, that Cornelius has, an Italian soldier. Right? Thank God for the Italians. Right? We don't think, when we think of Italian, I, bro, I grew up in Brooklyn, and we had an Italian family, and I grew up in, and we migrated over to Queens. Every time, every time everybody would talk about Italians, it was always, oh, have you seen the Godfather movie? I mean, I, I, you know, right? You've seen the Godfather. But here's an Italian cohort, Italian soldier, who gets a vision. He's a Gentile, gets a vision to go and meet Peter, who also gets a separate vision, Peter, the lead apostle at the time, and it's all about food. That food is no longer going to separate Jews and Gentiles. Now, let me just say this, friends. When I say Gentiles, we may not, when I say like the gospel is for all people, for Gentiles, we might assume that, yeah, I believe that. That makes a lot of sense. I don't think we understand the gravity of what was going on in the first century. You know why? Because unless you've come from Jewish descent, we are the Gentiles today. We're benefiting from what happened between Acts 9 and 11. We're the benefactors. I don't think we get it. The, there was a real concern, a real, I'm sure Peter and Paul and James, they, stay, they laid awake night after night thinking, what's going on here? What do we do with these people, Gentiles? Like, they believe in this stuff. We never thought it would happen that way, right? Maybe they should become Jewish first. That would be maybe an ideal thing, but then that is so cumbersome and burdensome, and we want to just get the message out. So when I say Paul was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, consider it radical. That was a radical approach in the early church. And then the thing about food. We all like to eat, right? I enjoy eating. It's part of my spiritual gift. Well, no. <laughs> right? So eating is really, really important. Matter of fact, when I remember, I grew up in an Italian-American household. I lived with my grandparents from Italy, both in Brooklyn and Queens, so we always had food. Uh, one of the problems was we always had too much food. We always had like a second meal that you had with your grandparents, right? You ate your regular meal. You went downstairs, and my grandmother could not have a conversation with me unless I was eating something. That's how I remember my grandmother. Matter of fact, I didn't even know what she looked like for a number of years because her back was always to me as she was in the refrigerator pulling out food after food. But let me say this. Don't you think that, I mean, I look at my life, most important decisions in my life was over a meal with my family talking about where to go to college, talking about um, various things. I can remember my wife, Mary, and I uh, over a meal telling our parents we wanted to be engaged, right? So, all, so food is critical. It's not just for biological necessity. It's a social contract. You eat with people you like, I hope, right? We don't say, well, we, unless Thanksgiving. That's always an issue, right? <laughs> There's always some crazy aunt, crazy uncle that comes out from the attic during these times, and then you say, oh, my, we'll never get through the mashed potatoes. But let's be honest. You, you eat with people you like, love. So food is not just something we do biologically. It's a social acceptance. When Peter 
and Cornelius get this vision, it is radical because that's what separated Jews and Gentiles in the first century. It was over food, certain foods that the Jews could not eat, and Gentiles ate certain foods. And now it's all food is clean, all food is pure, and they could eat. Radical, radical. And then last but not least, in chapter 11, guess what happens to the Gentiles? They receive the Holy Spirit. What an interesting, interesting dilemma. They're actually receiving the Holy Spirit. Why do I say dilemma? Because look, uh, the text says this. Luke records this in chapter 11, verse 18. Now listen to the language here. And when they heard this, they were silent. This is Peter giving the information. He's doing an executive summary to Jerusalem. Like, what's the report? They were silent when the Peter started talking about what was going on. Why were they silent? And they praised God saying, that's Peter and the gang, that God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. I like the word even. Like, God even gave those Gentiles, right? Gave those Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. They, got, they received the Holy Spirit. No one knew what to do with them. So why does this matter, <laughs> right? On July 17, 2016, why does this matter? Well, I think it deeply matters for the church in the 21st century. We won't have time, but let me just suggest um, when you think about our culture in the 21st century, the word polarized comes up pretty regularly. Polarized, it's always an us versus them. No matter what you discuss, it seems that way, whether that be on television, the blogosphere, radio, talk shows, it's always us versus them. And I think there is, there's always room for debate. So I'm not suggesting we should, not, we should stop debate. But there's a difference between debate and being polarized. When you're polarized, no one's really listening to each other anyway. What you find here in the Acts of the Apostles is not an us versus them, but Luke is asking us to look at a we, at a we. Not an us versus them, not an either or, but a both and. That's the only way the church is the church because they received in the Gentiles. One of the things about the early church is that it was always about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's not suggest that Luke is just saying, be inclusive for inclusive sake. He's saying, be inclusive, but always have at the root of that inclusivity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus talked about the gospel. He talked about the good news in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. That was probably the first words Jesus uttered in his public ministry. He says something like this. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God has, has appeared. Repent. Believe, repent, and, and receive the good news. Believe in the good news. Now, there's something of a requirement. There's a responsibility with the gospel. It's not just inclusivity to bring people and never challenge them with what it means to encounter the living Christ, the living Christ. The gospel has to be big enough for all people, all people. The church has to be a place for all people, not just for people we like or people we like to invite some, but we won't invite others. It has to be a place for all people. When I was... Um, in college, I went to college in Queens, New York. Went to Queens College. Actually, I was a first-year student when Jerry Seinfeld was a fourth-year student. Of course, we never knew each other. 
but I could tell you I was good friends with him. That'd be a lie, and that really just cuts away at my integrity. But if you watch some early Seinfeld episodes, you'll see him with a Queens College sweatshirt, T-shirt, and so he was there when I was there. At, when I was at Queens College, I worked a delicatessen, a Queens delicatessen. You could just imagine what that looked like in Queens, New York. I was the deli manager on the weekends. And when I was on the uh, deli manager on the weekends, I, 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 I kind of struck up a relationship with this fellow by the name of Steve, who would come in Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday afternoons. And Steve was on a mission because all he wanted to do was buy a six-pack of Heineken. That's all Steve wanted, because Steve was just wanting to stay kind of inebriated as much as he could be all the time. And Steve was a very interesting character in the 1970s. I mean, Steve was the only fellow I knew who wore a leather vest, a leather, beautiful leather vest, but never a shirt, which is kind of frightening when you're a deli manager uh, trying to keep things sanitized there. And I can remember talking to Steve, hey, what are you doing? And he was always so happy and, oh, yeah, Joe, no problem, just having a great time, it's a great life, you know, and it's this and this and that. And I thought, what should, what should, how should I talk to Steve? Should I invite him to the church I was attending? I don't know. You know, and, and other customers would come in, and so our conversations were sometimes interrupted, and this went on and on. Well, I left the delicatessen and, and got married five years go by, and my wife and I are attending a church in Queens, another, in another part of Queens, and it's a Sunday morning, and I'm up, 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 up in the balcony uh, worshiping, with a, and there's a guardrail right in front of the, those sitting in the balcony, I guess, so that they, in passionate worship they would literally <laughs> fall over. And all of a sudden there's a tap on my shoulder. So I'm worshiping, I think it's a hymn, we're singing a hymn, and somebody taps on my shoulder, and you might have had this happen at, at Valley Point, and I kind of look over, just kind of wave just nicely, um, thinking I'll, whatever, maybe it was just an inadvertent tap. But the person kept tapping, wanted my attention. And I turned, and the song is playing, and we're in stanza number three, and I turn around and look, and, and then my wife said, what's the matter? Because I turned around, and I kind of got a frozen stare, and my lips stopped moving, because the person behind me was Steve. Was Steve. And he had a shirt on, which was, <laughs> which was really uh, very heartwarming there. But it was Steve. He had a full beard. He was next to a woman and a couple of kids. And I said, oh, my Lord. And so we sing. We finish the worship. The worship service finishes. And Steve then reconnects with me and says, hey, Joe, how are you? It's been a few years. I said, oh, yeah, Steve, it has been. He says, you know, um, someone invited me to church. And my life was changed. I'm a missionary to Mexico. Here's my wife and a couple of kids. And I, I said, are you the same, Steve, that every weekend, and it was. My gospel was too small. As a matter of fact, I think I, would, I, I felt embarrassed to invite Steve to the church. Even if I wanted to, I thought, who would invite Steve? I mean, he doesn't even wear a shirt. What are they going to think of him in the church? But friends, that was a, a fault of mine that I still remember today. The church has to be a place that invites everyone. The church has to be a place that invites everyone. Not to be a respecter of persons, right? Regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, political affiliation, issues of mental illness or physical learning challenges. You could just 
listed to, you know, all together, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green Party. The church has to be a place that invites everyone. Because if the church is not a place that you can invite someone, or I can invite someone, you know where they're going to go? I'm going to give you the address of where they're going to go. I am convinced of this. They're going to go to 84 Beacon Street in Boston, Massachusetts. 84 Beacon Street in Boston, Massachusetts. You know what's located at 84 Beacon Street in Boston, Massachusetts? Cheers. Where everybody knows your name. Cheers, that sitcom from 1982 to 1993. 275 episodes. You don't think that has had an impact in our culture. Well, you remember the theme song, right? Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everyone knows your name. Almost sounds like a mission statement to a church. But you know what? I grieve when I hear people say, oh, I could never invite so-and-so to church. I grieve that. Because where else are they going to go? What's the plan B? What's plan B? Cheers? Is that, is that it? I think we need to begin to understand inclusion individually. What are some of the stereotypes that we might harbor, right? What are some of the issues that we feel, ooh, I don't know if that person would ever fit at the church. We need to deal with our own insecurities and stereotypes. And then the church as a community, as a corporate body, has to be salt and light. We need to speak truth to culture. We need to be salt and light. We need to be a beacon, a city on a hill. When people see, they come. They come because they know they are welcomed and they can be included in the body of Christ because the gospel is being preached and they have an opportunity to receive Christ. They have that opportunity. You have to welcome people to receive Christ. I'm not saying you couldn't receive Christ at Cheers. I don't know. I've never been to the actual bar. There's a lot of things people receive at bars, right, and, and, and social clubs, right? I don't know. You can come to Christ anywhere, but the church has to be a place of welcome there. We need the good news, but we need a big good news. We need a big gospel. It's not about being politically correct. I'm, I don't want to be politically correct. I want to be biblically correct. Read the text for yourself this week. Listen to the words of Luke, the, the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, and hear what he's saying about the early church. Let's pray together as we finish. Our Lord God, as we hear your word this morning, we are grateful for churches like Valley Point that continue to embrace people where they're at and continue to share the gospel with people so that they too can be included. Lord God, we ask that you continue to sustain us for the faith, uh, journey of faith, that we ask that you can continue to strengthen us so that we are people of substance, that we are people that love and care, and we are people that can be called Christians because we follow you in our fragileness, in our ambiguity, in some of our doubts, but we still follow you. We still strive 
to be in relationship with you and the body of Christ so others can see the way we live has a great impact. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this congregation. Continue to bless their, all their efforts in the communities. May they continue to share a big gospel for all people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.